0: And then open up, please, to the Gospel of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 16 today, which is going to be, a, boy, what a fun text to dig into today. And so we read chapter 16, go ahead and get there, should I say? Open up your Bibles, flip in your iPhones or Androids or Blackberries to the app that takes you to Genesis 16.1. And if you are on your phone at the moment, or Android, or well, it's just also a phone I suppose, go ahead and turn off the ringer. That'd be lovely. Chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now said I... Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Would you say Hagar? In right, her brother's name, of course, is Cigar. Just kidding. Right, anyway. <laughs> Seserai so, so said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, Heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar. Obviously, this is a PG-13 particular message. And she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. Living up to her name, Sarai never being contentious. I gave you my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. In other words, she's saying, What have you done to me? So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And she said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai." The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants and exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall name him Ishmael. Would you say Ishmael? Ishmael. Now, perhaps you're familiar with the word Shema. Like the prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. Shema, shema means hear or heard. El means God. Ishmael means heard by God she name him Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke with her. Would you say El El Roy? Look at all that Hebrew you're saying. Isn't that wonderful? El Roy, El means what again? God, roi means see, so it means the God who sees. For I have seen her, I'm sorry, her, oh my goodness. For I have seen him, that's creating another doctrine there, um, who sees me. Have I seen him who sees me? Therefore the well that she was at was called beer. would you say bir? In case you're wondering what the word beer means, it means well. Lahai Oh, come on, this is Hebrew, you can't say it that way. Lahai better. Roy, which means the well of the living one and the one who sees. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram named his son, who Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 68 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Pray with me, would you please? God, I, I know for some of us, we look at this text and we go, what in the world? I thought this guy was supposed to be perfect. And, and I'm so thankful we have a human being here who has dealing with situations much like we deal with. And God, I pray that we would look at it in the literal sense of the history it is, and then also look at it in its general application as we see it in our own lives today. So God, for that to happen, I am needing something supernatural to take place in this room supernatural with me that I would be in essence transparent, a jersey you put on. So Lord, immerse me in your spirit that I would become, clear, become crystal clear, clear and in that God then that you would fill me, that you would be seen in my absence. And Lord, as you become crystal clear here today, crystal clear in your An understanding of who you are and your will. And as I become crystal clear in the sense of being transparent, I ask that you do something supernatural with every one of our set of ears. That you give us a supernatural ability to discern. Lord, you tell us that we can't even understand spiritual matters unless they're spiritually discerned. And therefore, the world cannot gravitate or hold or embrace them or receive them Because they can't discern things with an eternal perspective when dwelling solely in the temporary. And I pray, God, today that your Holy Spirit would do His perfect work in this place. God, that you would do something so beautiful, so perfect, so profound, that no no matter where we were when we came in this room, no matter where we're at in life, God, you would speak to us individually, so personally, so privately, so intimately, that we could clearly say, and only ascribe it to you, and then God, beyond simply retaining, beyond our retention, fill us with the intention, Lord, of being, of willing, to, desiring to to do that which you lay before us now. Bring salvation, correction, equipping, transformation, reformation to us today. And I thank you for the sweet privilege it is to assemble with my sweet brothers and sisters and the honor that it is today to stand before you and say, God, do your work here. So, Father, I lay myself, this precious flock, I lay this time before you. Glorify yourself upon each of them. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, interesting if you actually approach this without any form of prejudice or forethought, you come up with some interesting information is by the time you get to the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts it tells us, the, the time stamp of his age, and it tells us that when Abram left a place called Haran, he was 75 years old. Now, it's important because you can miss that, that God had prior to that point called him out of Ur. And if you actually put those two things together, you have to say, I don't know how old Abram was when God said, leave. That's an interesting thought. If Stephen, Stephen, God bless you, if Stephen is telling us the truth in his parasha in Acts 7, then somewhere before 75, God said, leave your family, leave everything, leave the town you came from, everything, and go and follow me. And suddenly he goes instead with Dad up to Hran. Now I gave you a little map. Hopefully you have that map with you. There's a couple maps on there, and there's a couple things I just wanted to show you in these maps. So I thought this was sort of interesting. Uh, can you yeah, get the big one? If you look at the big one first, the reason why I wanted to give you that is, is if you look at where he was in this area, Ur, where he started. Can you find that on the map? To your bottom right-hand corner. Do you see that? Obviously, that's, of course, in the Persian Gulf area, and he winds up going to a place called Hran. Can you find Hran, sort of at the top there. Now, if you notice the route he takes, I find this interesting because I hadn't really noticed this until I looked at it geographically this week, and that is that the man in his wisdom, this dead remember he's the, the um, <coughs> excuse me, he leaves with his father, Terah is if you think about it, what they're doing is they're skirting the Euphrates River. Do you see that? And then skirting the Euphrates River, that's a very smart idea, because remember, you're leaving not knowing where you're going. And the one good thing about this is, I mean, from a logical perspective, is that there's always water near you. And if there's water near you, there's always life. There's an ability to have something to drink. You don't die of thirst, which will be the most, the quickest, the most immediate need in the desert and in an arid area like this is. And so the reason I say that is, is that Dad appears to be kind of smart enough to know if we're going to go north, we're leaving where we are, and we just let's just follow the river. And they follow the river up to Chanan. Now ultimately, that's not the area. It's we read that once he gets up there, that God doesn't speak to him in between the time that he calls him at Ur until his father dies in Haran. So that whole trip that he takes all the way up north to Haran, all that whole trip, there's no call from God in that. There's no way God's saying it's a good idea, because remember, God said you need to leave all that behind and follow me. I need you to leave your securities, the identity that you knew, because I am going to gloriously reinvent you in a way that the entire world is going to know who you are. And here's a guy in the middle of a Persian Gulf, in the middle of a place, to be honest, that really is just a tiny little town in Cornwall. I mean, place where you, just, you don't think necessarily that someone's going to pop out of there and the entire world's going to know him. But somewhere in all of this, as he follows this route, he's in disobedience. At least in the sense of not leaving all of that stuff at this point. When Once his father dies, he still has his nephew with him. But at that point, God says, now let's give this another try. Let's get out of here. Let's go to the land that we're going to go to. The land I've called you to. And he takes the route south. Now see where the route is south to the area of Shechem. Do you see that? on your Now it will be on your left side. Now you're on the western side heading south. Do you see that? Now that's where Abram is going to start his, his altered journey. And I mean that in the sense his first altar is built there. Now look at where Shechem is and look at where Ur is. Can you see those? Now, I dare suggest to you, I mean, if nothing else, it's quite the possibility that what God would have done if he had just said, Lord, where do you want me? Is he would have cut across straight west from Ur to Shechem. But instead, follows his father up north to Haran and then south. Do you see how out of the way that is from the route that God would call him? Now, once he gets there, if you remember, he will head south from there to an area between Bethel and Ai and then out there, continuing south to the area of Negev. Now, once you go to the area of Negev, I want you to take a look on the other side for a moment, because you won't get that on that map. So flip to the one and look to the one to the left where it says the Wilderness Journey. The Wilderness Journey, by the way, that particular red line is is irrelevant to what we're doing today. That's more the traditional route of the Israelis that had left Egypt. But it's important to recognize two very key things. One is that when they head south from Shechem, and you could probably still see just where Jerusalem is, if you head south from that area, you have that kind of little area that's kind of, you know, kind of like a horn, or a little bit roughly the shape of Africa. And you head through that area, and that area, by the way, is the Delta Nile of Egypt. Now, notice what that area is called at the top left-hand corner. Do you see where it says the wilderness of Shur? Do you see that? Can everyone find that? Sort of like a Where's Waldo word search thing. You're pointing out things and see if you can find them. Now, now understand that whole area. Now, Shur means, by the way, fortress. What it means is protected area. And because it was a beautiful area, it was rich in, in a lot of things, including, by the way, it was very floral and very faunish. because of that, it was an area that was well protected because it was an area with a lot of water. And if it's an area with a lot of water, you've got to protect it because that's where people want to move in and live. I mean, imagine if you had five abandoned houses, but one of them had running water, which one are the squatters going to find? And the same idea is here. So you have this area of Shul, but then if you go to the left, you'll actually find this area. And notice where we are on the left-hand corner there. And the reason I say that is that is the area where the pharaohs lived. Now that is key, because when Abram leaves the area of Shechem and heads south, he heads all the way beyond through the Delta Nile, all the way to that side over to the west. So you're following me on this a bit. Now the reason I say that is that's we know that because it's the Pharaoh that he has to deal with that loads up Abram while he's there. When he tells you know him that his that his wife is his sister, he loads him up with all of these goods, and then ultimately finds out that the gal is his his wife, and then says you need to get out of here. But he never takes any of the stuff back, which by the way is a way of insulting Abram. And Abram leaves with a bunch of Egyptian stuff. Now that's absolutely what we'll read in the text prior to this point, and we've looked at that prior. Now that's kind of key. For what it's worth, it just said that in in chapter 12, verse 16, that he treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. And then in verse 20 of that same chapter, it says, Now Pharaoh commanded his men concerning them, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So get this. Abram shows up, he says, Hey, this is my sister. Pharaoh, by the way, gets plagued. That's a forerunner of what we'll see in Exodus. And he says, hey, you lied to me. What's the deal? This is actually your wife. That's pretty evident. Take your wife back. Keep your stuff and get out. And with that then, Abram leaves with all this stuff that he had gotten, in essence, as a purchase of Sarai. And as he leaves with all of this stuff, one of the things he leaves with, I remind you as you look at this list, are male and female servants from Egypt. Now that is key because that's exactly who we're finding in this chapter is a female servant named Hagar. Now, for what it's worth, Hagar means flight or escape. It's kind of key. Now, again, here was this route again. So he would have gone all the way up through Haran, all the way down to Shechem, a mount between I between I and um, and Bethel, Bethel and I, and then he heads down south through the wilderness of Shur. That's the Delta Nile to the area of On where the Pharaoh would be. From there, he has to go back up through, and he goes back up to that area, and he winds up in an area called Hebron. Now, if you didn't get all of that, that's okay. You'll kind of see it plays into our text. Back in chapter six, verse, or, yeah, chapter 16, verse 1, look at it again. One of the things you will notice in this is that God never calls here Hagar Abram's wife. But he makes special careful note that Zedai is still his wife. Even though she's given this terrible choice in all of this. And if I could title this particular message, it would be, Why Aren't You Leading? Whom Are You Heeding? Because that's exactly what we see in this text, both with Sarai and with, with Abram as well. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. Now, the reason I say that before in mean, regards to whenever God gave that call, because when God initially said, leave the land of Ur, he said, that's when he said, I'm going to make you fruitful. And it isn't just that it was at 75. Somewhere before that point, God said, you're going to be fruitful. I mean, I'm going to make a nation. I'm going to make a nation out of you. The entire world is going to be blessed out of you. Those are really grandiose things to say. It's been quite a while. Now I know that at least he's been 10 years, we read that, in Canaan. So beyond the time that he had been up in Heran, beyond the time where he had gone down to Shechem, in between Ai and Bethel, down into Egypt, and on the way back, he settles back in Canaan in an area called Hebron or Hebron, and then there he is there for a decade Still in the same place. The place where God said, this is it. Look around wherever it is I'm going to give to you. And for a decade, He has to look in the eyes of a woman who has to say to Him, when is this going to happen? This whole baby thing. We've had no children. When is this going to happen? And and there's nothing that Abram can say except, I don't know. I just know it's sometime." He didn't say. But which one of us Honestly thinks, well, it'll probably be another decade or so before that happens. I mean, a decade is like forever. I mean, think about a sin that you're dealing with, something that you really wish you could be delivered from. and you go, "God, you said I would be free from everything. And here I am. I'm still It's, it's been six months. I should be absent of every sin by now. You said you would. God, you said you were going to bring me out. I, I know in my heart you've said you're going to bring me a spouse. Where in the world is he? I'm getting old here. Tick, 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 Lord. And the Lord says, Hey, hey, if I didn't tell you when, there's a reason for it. Every second is a display of faith. Every second. That's the problem. When I look at Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and many of you are familiar with the story Jesus had just been baptized, it's another kind of odd situation. There's all kinds of humor in the Scripture, and that's one of them to me. Because here is Jesus. John's been saying, John, there's somebody coming. I'm not even worthy to unstrap his converse. Okay, loose paraphrase. Don't just believe me. Search it on your own. I mean, I, I, just, I couldn't yank off his Uggs. And in all of that, he's gonna come. And then, you know what he says? We kind of see him as this kind of colorful character. He eats bugs and wild honey. It's kind of covered in a leather belt. I'm not really even sure what that means. I, I, you know, and, and camel hair. And it's like in the middle of a hot sun. And the guy's wearing a fur and a big belt. I don't know. It's kind of odd. And he's standing in the middle of nowhere screaming and everybody comes to him. And that's a miracle to me. The bigger miracle is not only that, but they're actually not only listening to what he's saying, but they're heeding what he says. And they're all getting baptized and they're confessing their sins. And you show up and you go, this is the strangest thing I've ever seen. And I'm not even talking about John anymore. I mean, these people are going, whoa, you're right. I need to do something about this. God, I am. And imagine somebody going, I'm addicted to porn. And somebody else going, I've been cheating on my husband. And others, I'm addicted. Nobody knows it, but I'm addicted to Starbucks or whatever it is. And they're falling on their knees and they're getting in the water and they're coming out and, and just, oh my, and just, you watch this. And then all of a sudden, everything gets strangely, well, we think it gets strangely sedate because that's what they show in the movies. And then Jesus sort of walks into the water. And John's like, for the first time, he's like, whoa, 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 I should be baptized by you. Now, what would that be like for everybody else, right? And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. This is the way it's supposed to be. Let's do it. The, let's do it by the book, bro. You know what I mean? Loose paraphrase. And so John's like, all right. And Jesus is baptized. Something different for Jesus than all the others. He doesn't confess his sins because he has none to confess. And if he were going to confess his sins, he was dying for. He'd still be there now. Because that's my sins and your sins, and mine alone would have gotten us to this point. So. And then, okay, so then it's like, okay, so here we are. Imagine if you're just one of the people waiting in line, and just, Jesus was in front of you, and you're kind of like, oh, man, I'm in the queue. When is this guy going to get back? And then it's like, there's that conversation, you're like, all right, hurry it up. Will you? Come on. I need to get back. i got, you know, I've got my, bar- my son's bar mitzvah to get to. Or and, and all of a sudden, Jesus, and he comes out of the water, and he's praying, and a dove lands on him, and you hear, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we think, wow, what a cool moment. And then Jesus goes, Hey. Got to go. And off he disappears. And you're kind of like, where is he going? And, and you read in the texts then that Jesus was tempted. And the easiest thing to focus in is a couple of them where it focuses on that last day. Where it says, you know, Jesus was tempted on the 40th day. The enemy came to him and he throws these temptations. But what we read in Luke is that he was tempted for 40 days. And to me, that's more profound. Because it's one thing to go, okay, you have got. You can see the Father going, all right, Jesus, you've got 40 days to prepare for the showdown. You know, and you can see Jesus, all right, all right, I'm going to fast, I'm going to spiritually buff, I'm going to get ready. But it's like 40 days of him going, come on, aren't you hungry? Come on, Taco Bell. You know, you're like, all right, we're good with that one, not a problem. You know, but I, the reason I say that is there's something about being tempted continually that to me that is infinitely more profound. And that's what they're being dealing. That's what they're dealing with, for how? Who knows how long? I mean, and, and I gotta be honest with you, because there's something I learned from this. That to me, the hardest thing in this isn't Abram as far as dealing with the promise between him and God. I mean, as a man who's been married for 21 years plus, to me, the the part that just grabs my heart and squeezes it is the part to think that this guy has to look in the eyes of his wife and say, I, I, I don't know. And nobody said, I, I don't know when. I, I don't know what to tell you. He said he would. Well, how? How? how I, I don't know. And so somewhere in all of it, she's trying to figure this thing out. And bless her heart, she is trying to figure it out. And something occurs to her when Abram comes back and says, well, you know, God said, I mean, to think about it. He used to say, look at that. Eleazar, who was our oldest um, this appears that our oldest servant, born in our house, a Syrian, by the way, which means he probably came from Haran when he picked up a silverner up there. Is that he's like, look at God said, no, it's someone coming from my body. God says, look at, let's not compromise. We're not compromising on this. I said your body, I don't need your help compromising the literature. I don't need you to compromise the promise. It's illogical. In regards to what it says literally, but if you take it literally, then the only answer left is a miracle. And I'm going to work a miracle out of this. And you're thinking, let's dilute it a little bit, and it'll be at least more palatable to the logical mind. Well, the problem is often when you do that, you tend to create a bigger miracle. There's a, there are all these commentators, by the way. Some of them I would highly only recommend for entertainment. I'm not a big commentator reader. One of the reasons I usually get really angry and want to throw a book against the wall, when someone goes, what in the world? How are you delimiting God? And there's this one particular character, I won't even say his name, but he's always trying to devalue all of the miracles of God by trying to just make it some form of scientific jargon. And one of my favorites is the whole Red Sea Crossing. Perhaps you've heard of this. And the idea, I mean, these are the guys that do—you use know, just a swoon. And every time you look at this, you think the, the logic you're trying to p- create makes it so much more illogical the rest of it. And here's the idea. It wasn't the Red Sea they crossed. It was the Reed Sea. And we all know that the Reed Sea during the spring is only really about a foot and a half, a half a meter tall. And so what happens is if an earthquake were to happen, you could stop the flow, divert it, and you could even make it so that it was relatively dry, go- dry ground, and so that all of these two million or whatever Israelis could walk through the Reed Sea all dry and climb them nuts. Well, then you've got a bigger problem, because that means that all of Pharaoh's army drowned in a foot and a half of fresh water. Now, either they're minihunis, leprechauns, they were, they were in an army crawl, or there's something really happening. So where's the bigger miracle? You ever see what I'm saying? Now, back in our text. Really intending to go there. Sarah looks now and she's trying to work this thing through, through logically. And she's going through the words in her head, and she's going through the words in her head. And she goes through the words and she's just going, No, it can't be Eliezer. Because God said he would come from from your body. But he didn't say mine. Well, that's well, maybe he, maybe I've been the problem. I'm the problem, aren't I? You know why God's not blessing this ministry? It's because of me, because I'm weak. And what's interesting is her answer. She says, "You know, the Lord has Atzar confined, closed me in. It's the word for restraint here. And you know what?" It tells us in the scriptures, in Matthew 12, 34. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, your mouth is an overflow valve for your heart. When your heart gets full of something, it spills out of your mouth. How long has she been sitting in this? Stewing in this? Do you realize how amazing this ministry could be if I were out of the picture? Isn't that a sad thought? And to think that if I could tell you how many pastors, wives, and pastors I've spoken to, that that's what they tell me. And it's like you realize you're par for the course of Abram and his wife. That's what she does here. You know, the problem is, God's, what's well, you? The promise is it's all you. But we forget the fact that in all of this, God created man and woman and made them husband and wife, and he blessed that. And he says, I, I, I'm not going back on my first institution to fulfill a promise. I'm not going to create another sinful category of compromise just so that to get your help to fulfill a promise that I needed to put in a miracle. Um, and I realize, all of a sudden, there's the first problem. You see, if you notice in this, for what it's worth, there's a, the thing that kind of grabbed me as I looked at this in the beginning of it all is the end of verse 2 when it says, Then, or and, Abram heeded. Now, it's interesting because I went, okay, well, when's the last time? Well, there's only one other time in Scripture so far I've seen that word, and that was when God dealt with Adam and said, Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife. Now, in other words, is if God were to say, why aren't you leading, Adam? And you know, because you're not leading, you're busy eating. And it's interesting because Eve herself would heed the voice of the enemy. And what's interesting is the voice of the enemy that spoke to Eve, don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this, is the same voice that speaks to Sarai here. Look at how God is suffocating. Look at how limited you are. Look at the spoil sport that God is. I mean, if He really loved you, wouldn't He give you more freedom than this? Come on, Eve. Look at the little the hole God's shoving you in. Where's the freedom and love and joy and freedom and all of that? Sarai, you're a failure. You realize that, right? I mean, how many things do you must go through your head if you were Sarai going, you know, if only I were more nice, if only I was more compassionate, if only my heart were bigger, if only I loved more, if only I wasn't contentious. Maybe if that were the case, then God would have opened up. But since I am who I am, God obviously is going to need someone else to do this. Oh, it would be so much better, Abram, if you just had someone else to do this with. And I just realized, when I talked to, I mean, my own sister, who's been married a few times, children with each, and one of the men in between that series was a godly man. she had come from a guy who was a drug dealer, who was bad news, and from that she left him and wound up marrying this guy. And he was just so godly that he was dull. I don't mean that in any nasty way. He was predictable, like the Bible tells us we should be. He was a solid man of integrity. But you never worried about the police coming to your door. You never worried about whether there were going to be drugs in the house. There was just all that, expi- that spice and excitement was gone for a really good Cleaver home, for a Brady Bunch home, you know? Something in those places where Father did know best, and he did. And, and, she, and I remember her telling me like, whatever happened with Alex? She's like, I felt suffocated. I felt like if I didn't get out of there, I was going to die. And I thought, well, how do you feel about it now? And she's like, I'm such an idiot. you realize, oh. Well, here's the problem. If the enemy can get you to believe that, he can get you to believe that, well, then you don't think past the immediate solution. You don't think, and listen to the difference between the payoff and the payout. You see, the payout's what you get out of it. You know. I mean in the sense I should say this way the payoff is what you get out of it you know it's like what the hell, what is it, what's the payoff you know if I get this oh wow oh, I get that shiny new thing from Ronco and wow oh, that's beautiful and, and I saw it on, t- on television and everyone seemed so happy there was a half hour show about it and the whole studio audience was so excited they wooed and ahed over this thing and, but then it was like 150 easy payments and I realized that's the payout that's what I have to pay for after I get the pay. oh this is what I- and you get this thing you're like oh it's shiny for three seconds and then oh it's dumb and, but wow I have to pay it off for the rest of my, or to pay it out for the rest of my life, and I realize that that's what happens with sin, and the enemy does it so well. He says, "Look at this thing. Look at the failure you are. Look at this thing. Take the matters in your own hands. That's what you need to do. Get the matters in your own hands. Run, bail, get somebody else to take your place. And then all of a sudden, that point, you look and you go, well, oh, if I could, well, okay, that person, young.'" Imagine if she's got 318 trained servants in the house. She must have a large batch of gals to look around with. I wonder if she picks the cutest. She picks the most vibrant. I mean, who does she pick? Why does she pick this one? You think about it. I mean, if you were a mom and you were going to adopt, would you look around and you go, hmm, which one's going to leave the cutest baby? I mean, think about it. And so she picks, I mean, congratulations. You just won. What did I win? The mating game, (laughs) huh? (laughs) And in tradition, the idea is, if you know, this gal is, if a baby is born in your household, if she's put upon the knee of the of the master's, you know, of of the master's wife, they become official, in essence, official property, and even potentially the idea of adoption among the uh, among those who are the leaders of the home. And so, I mean, somewhere in it, Sarah's like, look, I just need, and what what's driving her? I mean, I tell you, there are, I mean, there are infinite amount of things that drive a gal. I've noticed when it comes to really wanting children. I mean, in this culture, it's extremely amplified because in it all, you've got a culture that looks at you and, and disdains you for not having children. Here's the irony, and I hope you catch it out of this: is that the the benefit for the moment, you know, the the, the payout of it is that she lose she okay maybe I can have, lose disdain and. Public, outside of my doors. But did you see the payoff is that she gets to stay in the house instead? And that will happen, by the way, when you buy into the shiny. I mean, you'll jump into it for a moment. I've got to tell you, one of the ministries we've had throughout the years is seeking to restore pastors. I remember one particular situation, sitting with a pastor. Well, he wasn't even a pastor. Well, yes, he was. He didn't have the badge. But he was in ministry, and his wife, and his wife was the one who ran out. And she ran out because she just didn't. She didn't feel loved, and she really just didn't feel respected. And she was really tired of people in her mind expecting her to be perfect out in the world because the church had grown to this particular place where she was feeling neglected. And there was this individual showed up at the church, and he was a good-looking guy. I go, I guess, but he was successful, and he was well-respected in the community. And, and with all of that, um, she just talked to him once, and the guy said, "You know, I was really." hoping to meet with your husband for prayer. And she's like, well, what's going on? And he started divulging all of these things, and she started feeling this connection to this guy. And and she's like, you know what? I... I, I, and and you, you know, you inch and you inch and you inch and you inch, and you lie to yourself with every one of them, thinking that that inch there's no there's no payout, there's no payout at all. This is I don't have to pay this thing off. I don't have to pay this thing off. The payout's just going to be I'm going to get good out of it. But man, i I got to pay this thing off. No, there's no payout. There's no easy payments. There's no payments at all. It's all get, no give. And, and somewhere down the line in it all, she kind of just let's sit and talk of coffee, and you know where that goes. And you know what the bill looks like. There's this moment I remember hearing her speak in in a voice that only happens to people when something like this happens. And I pray that that voice is never, ever something you have to hear or, God forbid, that any of us would have to speak. The moment that her daughter had to look at her in the face after all of that happened and it came down and she got caught and the whole bit. She didn't know that... She just didn't think she, she had three beautiful children... She just didn't know the, the hero that she was to her kids. She didn't know it because, well, they were teens, and teens aren't really good at saying those kind of things. They're good at saying the opposite, but they're not good at saying what they really feel when it comes to respect. And But I tell you what, boy, that girl, that her oldest, was so good at telling her how utterly ravished with disappointment she was because of these choices that this mother had been making. And that kind of bill to pay is bigger. The addiction to whatever it is, because you decided to give it a little try, the bill is always bigger than the benefit. And that's what we see with both of them. With Sarai's case, she says, you know what? I'm so tired of this this disdain. I'm so tired of feeling like I can't go out in public. We've got this dirty little thing that we don't have any children in this culture. Everything's about having children. And I, I just, there are 114 different verses in one way or another that directly tell from God to you in one manner or another, you need to wait. And there's a difference between waiting for and waiting on. Waiting on means I'm not going to tell you how to live this thing out. I'm going to sit on top of you until you move, and when you move, I'm going to go with you. I'm holding on to you. I'm waiting on you. Waiting for is I'm at the door, or I'm in the car, and it's running, and I'm like, when will you get in here? And I realize a lot of times that I have struggles have always been when I'm waiting for instead of on, if that makes sense. Like, I've already decided what God's going to do. I've already interpreted six steps beyond God said, go east. And I'm like, that means China. God says, east means one step. And I'm in China waiting for him, and God's like, hello, let's get back to that first step over here. What are you, what are you doing? And I realize that those are the moments. And then all of that, God's like, look at Every second that ticks when God has given a promise and you're not cashing in on it yet is a moment you get to display faith among other people who are also waiting for things that the world has to offer them that aren't satisfying them. And they're looking at you. Contentedness in that time period is one of the most powerful ministries the world can see. So it's like, you know what? God has always given me this promise. It is a circumstantial promise, but His presence, on the other hand, is what makes me content right now. Because if it doesn't, You'll jump after the shiny thing just like so I did. And so she heeded. She should have led. And I realize as I look at that word for what it's worth, this being the second mention, in Genesis 39, and I think this is profound, 39.30, it says, I'm sorry, 39.10, it says that there was a person who did not heed and that person's name was Joseph. Profound as that is because what he didn't heed were the rhapsodies of another man's wife. God applauds him for that. Exodus 32, 21. Moses comes down the mountain and he looks and he sees his brother and a, and a batch of people dancing naked in front of a golden cow. And he looks and goes, What in the world are you doing? And he says, Well, the people came to me and said, We don't know whatever happened to this Moses. We need something to touch and feel and see. Moses was the closest thing before. So let's make something. We, we came from Egypt. Apis was what we worshipped there for that. Let's build an Apis. And so, and so they threw it on their ears. And what, what we read is that Aaron says, Hey, I heeded the voice of the people. First Samuel chapter 15 Saul to Samuel. I've done everything the Lord said. And he's like, no, you didn't. You've compromised. And you haven't utterly wiped out what I told you to drive out. And he's like, well, the people, I hated them. And I think, huh, let me throw it into a handful of things this way. In Aaron's case, I learn who's important. Because if I'm not sure who that is, I will heed the voice of the people. In Samuel's case, in Saul's case, I learned what's important, which is obedience. In Psalm 51, when David speaks and says, against you and you alone have I sinned, Psalm fifty-one four. after he had sinned with Bathsheba, and you think, wait a minute, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against her husband that he murdered? Didn't he sin against the people? Well, I understand what David's saying. What David's saying is not that I haven't done wrong against these other people, What David is saying is, because then he says that you would be right when you judge, Lord, is what he's saying is, you were the only one who still called this wrong. See, in David's culture, because he was king, everyone was just going to say, yes, king. So when David, and by the way, David didn't meet, I mean, it wasn't like David was supposed to be in battle, but there he was, kind of getting patched up at the MASH unit, and this gal was a nurse, and they caught eyes. David was actually supposed to be on the battlefield, he's on his balcony, and he sees this gal bathing, who, by the way, happens to be his granddaughter, the granddaughter of the chief counselor for him, and the wife of one of his bodyguards, and her name means daughter of a covenant. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's three strikes. Any one of those would be enough to go, uh-oh. And, and yet in all of that, then it, this is the most amazing part, he says to his servants, gather for me. But what happens to a servant when he says, K- King, you're out, of, you're out of line here. Nobody says anything. And see, what David says is, God, you were the only one that never changed his mind, that never backed down, the only one who actually was not going to go on some sliding scale. You said it was wrong. You didn't change your mind because it's a new era, a new culture, and now it's less pertinent. What he says is, God, you were the only one who never said other, anything other than it was wrong. And I realize in David's case, I go with what's right. Listen, what I learn again, what I learn from Moses and Aaron is who's important. What I learned from Saul is what's important. What I learned from David is what's right. And then in Acts 4, the last of the four, is that when Peter and John are brought before the religious leaders, and interesting, don't miss this, this was the people that everyone else looked at and said, now that's real religion. That's the deal. The reason I say that is, don't expect all your persecution to come from people who don't call themselves Christian. Now, understand what they're saying is they're not saying stop your religion, stop your practices, stop giving to church, stop showing up in assemblies. The only thing they had a problem with was the name of Jesus, and don't miss that. I mean, reading between the lines, what you can read in all of this is, hey, look, I don't mind you singing your songs and having your little kumbaya moments and your little campfires and your cute little things, and I don't mind your little irritating shirts or whatever. The biggest issue... The biggest issue is that Jesus thing. Shut up about Jesus and we're cool with it. not that sound like our culture here? I'd say, look at, I don't mind you being a Christian. As long as you're not a real one, we're okay with it. And what Peter and John say is, hey, judge for yourself whether it's right to serve God or man. In other words, what they're saying is, hmm, interesting that we're among the religious leaders and I have to choose between obeying you or obeying God. Don't you find that a bit of a Paradox. You would think following them would be following God. But they're like, huh, strange. In this case, there's uh, opposites. And I've chosen who's important here. And I'm going to, I'm going to choose who's right. I'm going to serve God. And somebody, and you know what the worst part is? It's people who often really love you. But they say something like this. Hey, look at I'm Christian. I love Jesus. You know that. We go to church. We sing our songs. And, but you're getting a little fanatic. You're a little crazy. And, That's kind of freaking me out. Can't you just be kind of normal? I mean, anyone ever told you that? Here's the problem. If you were fanatically sinning, they would have less problem with you than if you were fanatically Jesus freak. You seen that? You're like, wow, how weird is that for you? And that's why you're like, hmm, what we have here is a cross in the road. Obey you, obey God. Well, I've made up my mind. How about you? So again, what I learned from John and, and, and Peter in this is who's right. What's you know, what's important, who's important, what's right, who's right. And if I make up my mind on those things, what I'll find is if I make up my mind on those, I will find myself leading a lot more than heeding. Because I'm already busy heeding someone else, and that's the Lord. And if I do that, then the rest of it kind of works out. Now follow me on this. It tells us here. That Abram being this great and mighty, of course, perfect man of God, hears the suggestion and goes, takes a look and goes, yeah, I think I could do that. So, then Sarai Abram's wife took Hagar, her maid. Notice, by the way, in verse 3, God makes clear again, Sarai Abram's wife. Did you see that? In other words, even though Abram agreed to this, even though Sarai offered it, I didn't change my mind, that's still his wife. And I still have a plan, and it's through her. I just want you to know if you are engaged or married or way into someone that's in the ministry, this is a corporate deal. You guys are one flesh, and God wants to change the world through both of you. I've got to tell you sincerely, in all the years of my marriage, I have never enjoyed my marriage more than I am as of recent. I, I don't know what in the world's gone, over, gone on over the last year, but London has done something really. I'm, I'm sure it's all what God's done through my wife. Um, no, actually, that's not true. He's he's done it through both of us. But there's just something I just I just love waking up and looking at her and just smiling and and I hear her laugh more and man, my heart sings when I hear that. I I, I see her with our oldest and and is, is and knowing their personalities, they could kill each other and instead they're they're enjoying each other, you know. And I just look at that and I'm like, God, what a great God. And God's like, Look at you got one wife. That's it. That's it right there. No matter, you know, I don't, you know, if she got weird on you, I, I'm not. I'm not getting weird. I'm not changing my mind on this. Praise God, my wife, that's just not where she's at. But I know with any woman there's that, in ministry, there is that temptation. That, you know, you're holding this up. And by the way, that happens to anyone. It happens to the guys, too. So he took her, gave her to her husband. Notice it says her husband. God says, did I have to make clear that these guys are still married when she's doing this? Abram to be his wife. But it's interesting. God's like, but I'm not going to call her that. After Abram had dwelt ten years, and again, he makes clear, that's a decade they've been waiting at least just in the land I promised. So he we went into Haggadah and she conceived, which by the way could have been one of the worst things because at that point it's pretty evident it must not be Abram's fault. And I'm sure she probably would have wished it was. And when she saw that, she, in other words, that confirmed what she had been listening to in the condemnation of he's closed my womb. He's confined me. Must be me after all. So when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Here's the payout, the payoff. I'm confusing the two and I'm sorry. Here's what she has to pay. Here's the bill to pay. At this point now, this girl looks and goes, hmm, problem with you, isn't it? Because I didn't have a problem getting pregnant. You man, Fertile. And she's looking going, mm. And this gal that's her servant now is, is loathing her. And here she is trying to get rid of the disdain out there, and now it's in her own home. And that's what happens when you bring the shiny thing home. So I said then, and this is what happens when you get caught in that, that you've got to blame someone. Isn't it easy not to blame yourself? Funny, you took the condemnation when someone else says it, but now at this point, it's someone else's fault. You know, and you know what she says is, look at the wrong you've done! And then yes, let's be honest. What the wrong he's done is he heeded instead of leaded, if I can say it that way. Because somewhere down the line, if she'd have said, take this gal, you know, I know she's fine. She'll make a pretty baby. And I imagine what it would have been. Wouldn't it have been nice if you, I mean, if you realized God was writing Scripture right now and something like that were offered to you and you went, uh-uh. I'm going to honor this marriage. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to honor this marriage. Now, it's interesting. If you read the book of Acts, for what it's worth, 22 chapters. It's a short book. Beautiful read. You get to the end of it, it just doesn't have a conclusion. There's no sense of closure. And I'm convinced the reason is, it tells us in the book of Revelation, God is recording all of our deeds. In other words, the book of Acts is still being recorded right now, up in heaven. What a glorious epic to be watched. We'll have eternity to watch it, so we might watch it a few times. Now, I mean, the reason I say that is, is if he really is recording up to this point, guess who stars in it? Yeah, you made the cut. The moment you said yes to Jesus, man, last call, boom, you are in. And maybe this would be the point where you'd be like, I kind of wish I hadn't made the curtain call on this one because somewhere down the line you're going to go, oh, oh, I know what's going to happen next. Uh, uh, don't look. Don't, you don't want to look at this part. And then you go, whoa, that part was edited. That's strange. Because according to Scripture, it tells us that if you've accepted Jesus Christ, all of the wrong things you've done have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now that's no reason to to sin. It is all kinds of cause to celebrate. And I realized, man, I would love there to be like this epic 28 volume, like something they did for the BBC for Jane Austen, like 75 volumes, you know? I was like, here and here's, you got other people going, why do we have to watch him for so long? He's like, because the guy was in love with me and he just was all about, wouldn't that be cool? Especially when there's no pride in heaven. I just watch and go, because I just know at that point I'll just weep and fall on my face and go, God, you sure did a lot to that guy. Well, that's me. And what would it be like? What if he's filming it now? I mean, we're reading this now. I mean, what are angels are reading your life? And kind of going, oh, this is going to get weird. Oh, that's weird. What? We're on another. And you ever see this point? So, well, we'll see it between this and the next point. i say, and then he was 99. There he was, 86. Now he's 99. And you're like, whatever happened to all those years? You could see God going, we're going to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, on, that's on the B-roll floor right now, baby. And I'm thinking, if I were, if I were Abr- Abram, I'd be like, oh, thank you. <laughs> So I was like, remember what you did when you were 89? It's like, it's like I don't know, it's not in the text, honey. and must did not <laughs> No, Now, there's something else to learn from this. As I look at this text, that if you'll say this, listen to this. An attitude to compromise once opens the door to concede as a lifestyle. Did you get that? An attitude... The compromise once opens up a door of a lifestyle of concession. Because, I mean, look at what we see. She says, hey, this girl's giving me grief. And you know what? Abram doesn't step into this one either, does he? He just kind of goes, well, looks like that's your problem. Deal with it whatever way you want to. But since he is busy not leading, he continues to be busy not leading. Hey, listen. The first couple years, Suzanne and I were married. I wanted to make her happy in every way I possibly could. What's interesting is I could be so busy trying to make my wife happy, I didn't lead her. She liked movies. And so we rented movies all the time. And and to be honest, my attitude for that was I just wanted her to be happy. What's interesting is as I look at the name Hagar, which means flight or escape, I wasn't sewing anything into my wife. We were just escaping all the time. It was a busy day. It was kind of tough. Bull, oh, man, you know, if you know the stresses from school and work, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I just need to escape. I never took her to the cross, man. And i tell you, it's a horrible lack of sewing. It really did. And I'm just being as, as honest and as vulnerable and as transparent as I can be with you. It took until our, my wife was pregnant for me to go, you know what? We've tried this whole devotions thing so many times and not got anywhere. It's now a non-negotiable. We are not going to have a house with children and not have a house where the Lord is going to be just center point. And it wasn't like we weren't Christian. It wasn't like we were out smoking pot or getting drunk. We didn't go near any of those things. We were just so ingloriously mediocre. There wasn't any like sowing. It sounded like hey, look at, there weren't necessarily a lot of weeds in the field. It was just dirt. And people go and you go, wow, well, check out the garden of our marriage. And they're like, wow, a nice dirt field you got there. <laughs> It's like, yeah, kinda, because they're like, well, what should be growing in there? And I'm like, I'm not really sure. We haven't planted anything. But the moment my wife got planted with our daughter, that, that particular moment, we're like, okay, we really need to take a serious look at this garden we're in. But it was one of, by I mean, far, one of the best things that has ever happened to us. I praise God for my children all the time. Do as you please. So what does Sarah do? She deals harshly with. And what does the girl do? She flees. As would be any girl in her right mind would do at a moment like this. The word for what it's worth literally means to abuse, to abase, to afflict, to browbeat. She's like, oh, you want to get a little cheeky with me? I'll show you cheeky. Now, interesting, I won't develop this as much as I would love to for the sake of time, but the angel of the Lord shows up. And for what it's worth, the angel of the Lord is one of the most glorious anomalies in all of Scripture. And the reason is who is in the world is thee? Not an angel of the Lord, but thee. For what it's worth, a couple of key points, though. One is, the word for angel in the Hebrew and in the Greek, where we get the word angel, angelos. Listen, listen, listen to this closely, because I don't want to freak you out. Is an occupation, not a species. An angel means messenger. That's all the word means, someone who carries a message. Because the same word is used when John sends messengers to Jesus to say, are you the real guy? Or should we look for someone else? Now, either John called angels that we know, like seraphim, which is plural, or cherubim, which is plural. No, those are species, so to speak. Can a human being be an angel? In the sense of it carrying a message? Certainly. As a matter of fact, we'll find that. John, for instance, sends them. He doesn't send cherubs that we're aware of. He sends human beings. Can a donkey be an angel? Well, you might want to ask the Chaman that, because according to him, I would say he says yes. And if God could use such individuals, and the reason I say that, for whatever it's worth, is there is a, someone is carrying a message, that's the point of this, that she's going to say, I saw God. And this particular person is going to say, I'm going to multiply, which the only person who said that so far is God. Now, am I saying the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnation of Jesus, or is God somehow visibly? I can tell you it doesn't, it doesn't fight the text, but I can tell you, you're welcome to stand on either side of that and love the Lord. Does that make sense? And we're going to call that scenario where you can go, wait a minute, this scripture makes it so clear, and I could, we could spend all day on that. The point is, no matter where you stand on it, God has no problem engaging you where you need to be engaged. That's the point of it, and clearly that's the case here. Interesting, it's with this gal. And so, with it, the, I mean, this, this gal who you would have thought has been browbeat, she's just a servant, and God still has it in for her in the best of ways. Isn't that beautiful? But notice it says that the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of the water in the wilderness in the spring on the way to Shur. Now, here's a little quiz for those of you who when we started this a year ago, well, actually just the beginning of this message, um, in regards to where the wilderness of Shur is. Does anyone remember where that was? Look at, You can look at your map for a second. Where was the wilderness of Shur? Yeah, it was the protected place. Good. So where is that? Excellent. It's in the Delta Nile on the way back to On, where the Pharaoh lived. In other words, where is she going? She's going home. She's like, enough of this, man. I'm tired of being browbeaten and all this. I'm out here. And she heads back to where she came from. Do you get that? Now, wouldn't that make sense? I mean, there's probably a family there. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Hagar, mom and dad. The flight family. And the angel goes, well, where did you come from? Where are you going? And she's like, look, it. this is really bad. I'm getting out of here. And he says, look, it. go back. You don't know the rest of the story. Yet. I've got more to do with you. And I do want you to know that you are going to have a son. I am going to, notice in verse 10 it says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that she can't, they can't even be counted in multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're with child, and I'm going to tell you three specific things. He's going to be a wild ass. Pardon me for saying that. If you were read King James, the word is used ten times. Nine of his times this particular word is used. That's exactly how it is. Wild donkey. That's the word. The only time it's not translated, that is here. Job, Psalm 104, Isaiah 32, Jeremiah 2, 14, Hosea 8. His hand will be against every man, and every man against him. He will dwell in the presence of, the, of his brethren. So then she calls the place. this calls him? you're a God who obviously sees and interesting but you're going to call my son the God who hears don't miss that and then she calls the place this is the God who is who is who, alive and the one who sees me now here's the point as I bring this around to a close okay so what you have if you think about it is a work of the flesh Abram did something he wasn't supposed to he heeded his wife and in doing so he entered into a sinful relationship with a woman and had a son now, there's two aspects of it. There's in regards to the result of your heating, and then there's the aspect of him being human. As a human, God still loves him, and he still has a plan for his life. But as a result of that sin, of cashing in the shiny thing, he says three things are the result of the product of that. So you're like, oh man, I'm going to take the matter into my own hand, I'm going to do this myself, I'm so tired of waiting for God's promise, and you do, and God says, let me tell you three things about the product of what you just did. First thing is it's going to be antisocial. Untameable. That's the idea of a wild, a wild donkey is it's something no matter how much correction you try to put to it, it is going to be something that's not going to be tamed. Second is it's going to be an opposition to you. It's anti for you. It's anti you. Think about it. And then the third thing is it's still going to be among you anyways. Do you realize? So this is what happened. Okay. I know that I shouldn't probably go out there and get wasted. But hey, everyone of this my Christian friend says we're gonna meet at the pub, we're gonna do something godly, like just have a couple Guinness and talk about God. The Guinness part happened, but the Guinness and God thing really didn't turn out. It just became Guinness and Guinness. And, and somewhere in it I kind of got drunk in it all, but now I got a taste for Guinness. And now what happens? And so now all of a sudden it's like, look it, I want to tell you, no matter what it is, this is the issue. It's going to be antisocial, it's going to be antagonistic, but it's still going to be among you. From that point on, God says, I want to warn you, this thing's going to be among you now. It's gonna be something convenient for you to choose. You now know it. You now have a taste for it. And because you have a taste for it now, you need to know it will never submit to you. It will never become your friend. This thing needs to be driven out. Now, as a human being, God still finds her and says, go back. But what's interesting is, as your sin, the Bible says, unless I kill that thing, it's always gonna be your neighbor knocking at your door saying, we wanna come and play. So you were a young guy and you fooled around a little bit with this gal and with that gal and then you saw the internet and you saw what could happen there and you got your education from everything but the Bible and then you tried to have a godly relationship and when you tried to have a godly relationship, you guys just listen, listen, you still got this neighbor. This neighbor that is your enemy that isn't going to be tamed that isn't interested in anything but total domination and you go well I can open up the door a little bit a little compromise a little late night this a little that I mean who cares and in the end of it all when when listen to this listen to this when Abram did that one of the first things he did is destroyed the honor of the woman he loved because of a little selfish open door. Hey, she said it was okay. I should be leading, but now I'm heating because she allowed it. So hey, no worries. We'll just, you know, we'll kind of do these compromising things. Who cares what other people think? I'm not going to, hey, you know, those closed-minded, you know, whatever. I'm just going to kind of... And then you lost... And she's like walking around without honor now. Hey, look at the Bible says, I don't want you sinning, I don't want you going near it, I don't want you playing near it. You go into the lawn of your antisocial neighbor who wants you dead, you're gonna get shot at. There were areas in Chicago where I came from. You didn't play ball there. The people that were there, just by this color of your skin, would shoot at you. And it wasn't like, well, you know, maybe I could just get near it, because it would be exciting to see the guns, the bullets whiz by. God's like, you're nuts stay away. Is there any part of that you have a problem with? Hey, you know, the riot's hitting down the street. Everybody's looting. Let's just get part of the crowd. I won't get in. And then you're like, well, what's that? Security camera. And then you look on the, you know, like, hey, look at the looter. And you're like, looter, I was I was just with them. It was kind of exciting. But, you know, people loot all kinds of things. Even, You know, not just that. They loot other people. They loot themselves and, and you can be a part of that and think, oh, I'm totally cool, no problems. And then it's like God's security camera. Like, what are you doing? This is, going to be, this is going to be a wild donkey to you for the rest of your life. What are your wild donkeys? And if you're in a relationship and if you have real friends, I think it's really wise you tell them what your wild donkeys are. Because you need to know. When one of the first things I sat down with the people that were coming here before we left for London as I sat down with the crew and said, listen, you guys, you need to know where I'm at. My natural wild donkeys are these. I didn't use those words, but it's like, look it. In the flesh, totally, I'm a violent individual. I hate people. That's just who I am. How's that for a perfect making of a pastor? And then it's like, God murdered that guy. Well, he didn't murder. He killed him properly. I murdered him to do it. And in doing so, then he was looking I'm You, a person who loves people. It's like, but hey, like, you find me wanting to Isolate? Nail me for it. That's key. I realize, listen, for every one of us, beloved, what are your wild donkeys? Now, if you didn't have God intervening, this wild man, and we could go, oh, let me tell you about the father of this nation, and blah, blah, It's like, let's just go with the point we need to get for us, first and foremost. Before we just want to look out these doors, we don't want to not deal with this, because that's the thing that needs to be dealt with right now. And for me, I need to know, look at what are those things, because... God says, look it, I'm not going to just take that thing and just corral it. I'm going to take that thing and kill it. Because in your life, you need to give me permission to nail that thing to the cross where it belongs. The addiction, the appetite, the perversion. We're done. Let's get this thing done with. Now look at Buddha couldn't promise you that because there's nothing you can do about it. Muhammad couldn't do that. There's nothing he can do about it. He killed a lot of people, but he didn't actually do anything for you in that sense. But my God hung his own son on a cross so that every one of your wicked, raunchy, nasty, filthy things, and mine too, could get nailed to that cross and say, look at I killed that wild donkey now. And I'm going to make you a new creation. And I love the fact that the Bible doesn't say whoever said yes to Christ became a new creation. It says whoever is in Christ is a new creation. That means every moment as I walk in Him, I'm continually made new. Which, by the way, for me, and probably you too, is definitely a desperate need for continuum of that. So look at it. I want to go to prayer right now. Well, let me ask you, where are you not leading? And to whom are you heeding as a result? The culture you're in? The people you're in? Who's important? What's important? Who's right? What's right? You know, when I open up this book, oh, that's so clear. But if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm here to let you know right now, God can take all of that nail it to the cross and reinvent you this very second. That's the choice you need to make. I've made mine. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, God, I just want to thank you so much for the beauty of of this text, Lord, and for the radical challenge that is set before me here for all of us. And Lord, I just, I just pray right now, Lord, for every believer in this room that has accepted the gift of Your Son that You would bring before us the wild donkeys of our own life that will be antisocial, clearly be antisocial, will clearly be an opponent to us, even right now. Lord, that will clearly be antagonistic, Clearly be in competition, antagonistic, Lord. God, I just pray right now as they're also among our own being. God, we just we, we know you nailed them there and you tell us to count those things as dead, reckon them as dead so that we don't go and want to play in that yard, so we don't want to go near that, Lord, for those appetites that, Lord, are just clearly for our own destruction. You've slayed them, Lord. May we slay them in our hearts. We don't want to love what you have killed. So God, I just pray right now for myself, for my wife, for my children, for our flock, the flock that's your flock, that you bled and died for, God, that this would be a flock of life. So Lord, right now, if there are areas we're entertaining, doors we're leaving open, societies where we are too busy following and not busy leading, Lord, I pray right now if we can't lead, then let us get out. God, I pray if there be anyone... But in the sound of this voice who has not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, that death on the cross and that resurrection right now, God, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show them their need. And in that right now, as we pray, move our hearts. So, Lord, do your work. And if that's you right now, I'm going to pray this prayer. And whether it be that you have said yes to the Lord, never... Or you just recognize you just want to re you just want to recommit your life, want to reacknowledge your 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 accepting of that gift, and just well then pray this prayer with me. God, I I am a sinner. I recognize that. I recognize that I'm a faulty person with bad appetites, appetites for my own destruction, and that destruction is something I have rightly earned by these choices. And yet, God, you so loved me that you took all of my destruction and laid it upon the shoulders of your Son, nailing him to a cross that he would pay for all of the sin of mankind, mine included. And then he rose again on the third day to offer me a brand new life, one that is no longer encumbered or shackled to my old appetites, to my destruction, but rather now one who can raise his hands in freedom and say, you reign, you are mine and I am yours. And I pray right now for every one of us, God, that we would celebrate the God who celebrates us. And I say yes to that gift of Jesus. I confess him not only as my Redeemer, And my redemption, not only as my Savior, but also as my Lord, as I hand myself to you and say, God, do with me that which brings you pleasure. Lord, give me nothing but an unhortened distaste for the shiny things of this world and fill my heart instead with a radical abandon and a complete surrender to you, my King. So I say yes to you and say thank you for being here, for wanting me. I am yours even as you are mine. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.